Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Dave Prince, when you come on up, Dave is a, a past, the pastor at a Living Word Church in Lansing, and Dave's been the pastor there for a number of years. And if you've ever heard me talk about the story of um, the terrible four-wheeling accident in the Dominican Republic, right, that changed my life, this is the guy that got really messed up. So fortunately, his shoulder is now out of the middle of his chest and back on the side of his arm. So he's good now, right? Okay. But Dave, we appreciate Dave. When we, um, when we launched Mercy Hill, Dave was a, a major um, just instrument in helping that to, to, to see that happen. And he's been a, a place of, of faith and believing for Mercy Hill and praying for you for years and years and years. And so it's a privilege that we get a chance to sit down and, and have him open the word to us and share, share God's word with us. And we're, we're continuing on in our series in the parables and so if you remember the parables, it helps us to reflect, take a moment to pause and reflect on what God's saying. But also, Jesus in his parables are encouraging us to respond to him. So it's not just reflection for the sake of reflection. It's reflection that provokes a response towards the Lord. And so as we get in the, in the word today, it's a moment for us to pause and reflect, but it's also a moment for us to respond to Jesus Christ and what he's saying to us. Because he is speaking, right? He says, my sheep hear my voice. So the Lord is speaking to us. So let's let's uh, let's welcome Dave as we open the word together. Amen. Thank you. So my shoulder is healed up completely. It's the rest of my body that's now in decay. So I always say use it before you lose it. And uh, anyway, it's happening. It's good to be here. It is so much fun to be here this morning. Uh, just a celebration and worship. I had a. I am just refreshed and encouraged already. I was thinking after we were done with worship, I have like a list of so many things that didn't go right this week. I'm just like, it's a big list. It's a long list. But after just a little bit of time of just worshiping God and exalting Him and getting my heart and mind just focused on Him and what a beautiful name He is and a wonderful and a powerful name He is, I just find myself refreshed in the Lord. I find myself encouraged and ready to just hear from Him. So my hope is that you are as well ready to hear from the Lord. Um, let me just start you out with the psalm this morning. Psalm 34 says this. It says, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Right? So lions, big, strong, eat things, right? Powerful, but even the most powerful, the king of the jungle, will grow weary. But those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. And I just consider... Now, do you feel as if you lack any good thing? Is there anything in your life where you're like, man, Lord, I'm just, I'm hurting here, or I'm, I feel just like empty, or I feel like I'm at a loss, or I'm out of money, or the scripture is real. It says, look, of all the strong things in the world, those that seek the Lord lack no good thing. Is that beautiful? So let me refresh you with that. Let's, let's start there and say, Lord, we lack things, we lack good things, but we seek you this morning. And, and Lord, we're just believing that, God, you're going to help us to lack nothing. Uh, so let's pray and let's open our hearts and then I'll, I'll uh, take us through this parable. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the way you love us. God, that you haven't stopped. You, you don't stop. You just continually and faithfully and aggressively love us. 
You're not sitting back waiting for us to do something depending on whether or not you'll move on our behalf. But God, you have already moved. You are already seeking us. God, you are just ready and willing, certainly able, God, to come and to move powerfully in our lives. God, we confess our sins, we confess our failings, we confess our exhaustion, our distraction, and Lord, we even confess the deviant things in our own heart. And God, we ask you, Lord, forgive us of those things. God, that's not who we want to be. We desire to honor you. We desire, God, to walk in your ways. And this morning, Lord, we ask you, Lord, that you would fill the gaps, that as we seek you, Lord, we would would have what we need. God, to live a life that honors you, to live a life that that just demonstrates love for one another, that cares for others, not just ourselves. God, we want you to move in our lives, so fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us, God, to be more than just natural people getting by, but Lord, citizens of heaven, that out of our bellies would flow rivers of living water, that life would come to us, but also through us into this world. God, I pray that, Lord, the things that are most urgent to us are the things that are most urgent to you. I pray that as we go through your word, let your word go through us. Let it shape us. Let it form us. God, let it become precious to us, like food, your word says. Food that gives us strength. Food that nourishes our body. Food that causes us to grow. And Lord, ultimately, let us be more like Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. God, we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm pretty excited to be a part of your parable um, experiment here this summer as you go through parables. Parables are great because they're stories, right? So, and Jesus taught in story all the time. We here in the West, we, we tend to think almost like learning as textbook. You memorize information. You, someone tells you what to do and you do it. And that's the way a lot of Western learning is. But here, Jesus, and certainly other cultures have different ways of teaching. He teaches through parables. And parables, like John, he said, they cause us to stop. Like, whoa, reflect. Wait a second. That was shocking, Jesus. What did you just say? I need to consider myself. And they bring us to this point of impact. Like, oh my goodness, now what am I going to do? Just like John said, that you have to do something after you hear them. And so Jesus taught in these stories all the time. And I think when we hear a good story, we respond, we understand that. And so we're going to look at one of the most dramatic stories, uh, parables that Jesus told. He told many great parables and stories. But this one, this one has a very confrontational um, element to it. It's the the parable, the story of the sheep and the goats. Those of you who are old enough to remember Keith Green singing about this, it kept you up at night because he was so dramatically portrayed this song. Most of you are not old enough to remember Keith Green, and so I'll just keep that to myself from here on out. But before we get to the story of the sheep and the goats, the parable of the, the ultimate king and judge of all things, I want to start with where the question is asked, because Jesus tells this parable in response to a question. And so the beginning of chapter 24 of Matthew kind of starts the story, and and I'm, I'm not going to read it. You can read it yourself, but I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you the story like, like it happened. It says that as Jesus was walking out of the temple, now this glorious, beautiful first century, Herod's temple, this thing was magnificent by any 
era or genre of architecture would judge. This glorious building, especially with this, there's not a lot of, you know, engines and hydraulics and equipment that builds glorious buildings back in the first century. And so you have this unbelievably glorious, beautiful temple. And as they're walking out of the temple, they've been in the temple, they've, they've taught, they've done whatever else. The setting is, they're walking out of the temple and Jesus' disciples come to him like, Jesus, look at this. They're almost like tourists in Jerusalem. These are kind of country boys from the north, from, from Galilee. They're walking out and they're like, Jesus, look at these buildings. Look at how amazing that stonework is. Look at the detail to that column. And they're kind of marveling at it. And while they're kind of in awe of this beautiful human architecture, Jesus says, yeah, but let me tell you this, that there will be a day when not one stone is sitting on the next, that all of this beauty will be crushed and destroyed. And they're like, whoa, Jesus is now predicting the destruction of the temple. And it had to be somewhere around 28, 30 AD. Now, later, we know history tells us that in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. That the Romans come under Titus and they just wreck everything. The Jews continually revolt, continually revolt, and the Germans are like, I've had enough. And Titus sends whatever, the 12th infantry just, just demolishes Jerusalem. It's pretty phenomenal that Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple. But in the disciples, they, don't, they, they never even considered that. But in the disciples' heart and mind, they're like marveling at it. And suddenly Jesus says, yeah, all this is going to be destroyed. And the temple being the place of God's presence, being the, the center of the universe for every good Hebrew. They're like, man, if this temple comes down, that means it's the end of an age. It is, the, it is like the end of the world as we know it. I know if those of you who are from Highland always consider Highlands like the center of the universe. Are there any of those left anymore? It's like, oh, Highland, Highland, Highland. Oh, Highland. Anything good has to happen in the Highland. Praise God. I, be true to your school. That's what I say. Just go for it. So there's this sentiment about the temple, like everything depends on the temple. And Jesus says, this bad boy's coming down. This thing, this is coming down to, it's going to be ruins. And suddenly in the disciples' mind, they're thinking, if this temple comes down, it's the end of the world as we know it. What, what are the implications of that? What are the consequences of that? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for the world? What does that mean for the universe? And they, they're flabbergasted. And they, and they ask this question, Jesus, Jesus, when will this be? And Jesus, when this happens, it'll be the end of the world. How will we know? And they said, what will be a sign that will tell us that this is going to happen? See, they always wanted to know ahead of time. They always wanted to have like a sign or some indication that they know that this is that. And, and Jesus was just terrible at giving them signs. Just terrible. They'd ask for a sign for this and a sign for that. And just like, I'm not giving you any other sign except the sign of Jonah. They're like, oh, the sign of Jonah. Jonah, yeah. That ended poorly for Jonah and a fish. And he wouldn't give them a sign. But they're dying. And they're like, what is the end of the world going to be like? If this temple comes down, it's the end of the world. And so tell us. Tell us, Jesus. 
What'll it be like? What should we do? How will we know? And so they're on the edge of their seat. And then in comes these stories. And there's several stories. We're not going to go through them all. But it's important that I sent the, 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 the story of the, the sheep and the goats in the context of, of three other parables that are right next to each other. When the Bible writers put these things together, they're telling a story, not just through the individual stories, but through the way the stories unfold together. And so in answer to the disciples' questions, what will the end of the world look like? How will we know? He tells three stories. And the third one is the one for today. The first story is about the ten bridesmaids or the ten virgins. And if you remember the story, there's like a bunch of, of, of the bridegroom is coming and they all kind of go out into, out into the, the edge of the city and they have their lamps because he's coming at night. And the bridegroom is coming for a big wedding and, and they have their lamps. And Jesus tells a story about these, these ten bridesmaids or these ten virgins who have lamps it's like a stick with the thing on top, and it's glowing, and it's night. And some of them did not bring enough oil. And it's a story about being ready. They came out to wait for the bridegroom, but they weren't ready. They didn't have all the supplies they needed. They were short oil. Then they went back, and they bought some oil, and they came. By the time they got back, the bridegroom had come. They'd gone in the house, and they were stuck out in the cold. It was a story about readiness. And he tells about how lazy, careless, distracted people... They miss what God is doing. Don't be caught unready. The second story is about diligence. And it's about being rewarded for being diligent. So it's the story of the ten bags of gold, as the NIV says, or as we are used to hearing it, the, the ten talents, or the, not the ten talents, the, the parable of the talents. That this, this great authority figure gave ten talents or ten bags of gold to Brooke, I gave ten to Addie, and I gave ten to Johnny. Right? And, and then he went away. And then he comes back, and Brooke had taken her 10 bags of gold and invested it. Now she's got 20. And then Addie had taken her five bags of gold, and she had invested it and done stuff, and now she has 10. And Johnny, because he's a fearful, scared little mouse, anything but that. That's anything but true. He took his one talent and he buried it because he was afraid something bad would happen. And Jesus, the, the authority figure, comes back and he's like, hey, great job, ten bags of gold. Wonderful job, five bags of gold. You wicked, horrible servant. How could you bury it? How could you bury what I gave you? I demand a return. And he gets thrown out and his bag goes to the, the ten bagger, twenty bagger now, and now she's got twenty. And the whole thing is like, whoa. And Jesus says, listen, you need to be ready. You need to be diligent with what I've given you. And if you operate out of fear and just bury what I've given you, I will not be happy. But if you invest and you go for it with what I've given you, I will say you are blessed and you'll be rewarded for that. And so you've got this, the parable of, of the being ready, the parable of being diligent, and then the last one. And let me read the last one to you. Finally, we get to the text for today. Matthew chapter 25 Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in all of His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on his left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, oh, that's great, thank you. But when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you? And I don't remember, or needing clothes and clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Because quite honestly, Lord, I can't remember. Emphasis mine. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did, For one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, you can imagine, in desperation, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger and needing clothes, sick or in prison? When did we not help you? And he will reply to them, As truly as I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Pretty intense. Pretty dramatic. Some argue that this isn't a parable at all. This is an apocalyptic judgment seat scene where where the ancient of days, where God himself is sitting on his judgment throne and he is bringing justice to the nations. I mean, it reflects Daniel 7 just perfectly. It talks about the Son of Man descending on a cloud and approaching into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And there the Ancient of Days, the ancient judge, the eternal one, sits to judge the nations and bring everything under his feet. The story is created, the language, the, the, the content, it echoes this Old Testament apocalyptic vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. But it's also parabolic in that it brings us to like consider, oh man, God, is that me? Am I, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Am I, am I the righteous, blessed of my father, given an inheritance that's been prepared for me from the beginning of creation? Lord, if that even exists, could I be a part of that? Or, or am I, am I the condemned? Am I the goat? Wicked? And evil in the eyes of God. I mean, this thing puts you on edge. Or you just need to tune out. Like, okay, that's too much. How do I know? What will we say? Jesus is making us consider ourselves in such dramatic 
intense, I mean, either eternal pleasures with the inheritance of God from before time or eternal hell with the devil and his angels and all the flames and fire of judgment. This is all the feeling of a parable. He's causing us to consider. And the disciples asked the question, what will it be like, Lord? How will we know? And Jesus' answer to them isn't, well, you'll have this sign, and it's, it's not the, the, the handbook how-to. This is how, he, all he's saying is, listen to me. First of all, you need to be in a state of readiness. Second of all, you need to be giving all you've got to the purpose and the will of my Father in heaven. Bags of gold invested for the kingdom. And in the end, the final judgment of the Ancient of Days will be gauged upon how we handle the weak and the broken and the feeble among us. That's intense. We avoid, I, I, was, I was really thankful that Johnny gave me this passage. I'm like, how can I have a, can I have like a parable, like a nice parable, like, you know, farmer sows seed on the road, that type of parable? Does it have to be the judgment and condemnation of the sheep and the goats? But this is a precious text to us. <clears throat> and I think, I think it's human nature to want to avoid these evaluations of ourselves. But Jesus uses the parable and he uses the question and he uses the open, desperate hearts of his disciples to teach us something. The first thing that we have to learn is there is a blessed inheritance that's been prepared by God from the creation of the world for those who walk in his ways. There is a blessed inheritance for those who walk in the ways of God. Does that inspire you? I was reading through this text and I was all concerned about how do I bring such a heavy message without causing people to just like run out the door? It's going to be some turn and burn, fire and brimstone message. No, this is provoking us to think and consider how we live our life, how our faith is expressed. And the first thing that we have to consider is that God has given a blessed and beautiful inheritance to those who walk in his ways. How about that for you? How about that for you? Well, then you start saying, well, wait a second. I don't know that I have all walked in his ways. As a matter of fact, I feel the shame and the guilt of not walking in his ways. Man, if that preacher even knew what I think or what I do that no one else knows, he would never even mention it in this crowd of people because he knows that nobody would qualify for the blessed inheritance created by God for you from the beginning of time. But the gospel tells us something so different. Even Matthew who is so concerned about the fruit of our faith. And he gives the Sermon on the Mount, right, which, which paints this beautiful, super high vision of the moral life of a believer. Not only are you not to kill somebody, you're not to hate them. Not only, not only are you you're not supposed to, to sleep with a woman, you're not supposed to even lust about her. Like when someone slaps you on the face, not only are you not supposed to retaliate, you're supposed to turn on the other side. So Matthew was so concerned that God's people have such a high sense of purpose and calling and understanding of, of who they're supposed to be. He doesn't mince words. As a matter of fact, there are theologians throughout the centuries that have said, oh, the Sermon on the Mount, that's not even possible. That's some lofty goal. No human could ever obtain that. I disagree. 
Because Jesus ends it by saying, look, if you build your life on these teachings of mine, it's like building a house on this rock. Nothing will knock you down. And so we have that. Matthew is very concerned about us living up to who we are, God's children, kings and queens, family with the Most High. There is no doubt that Matthew does. But also within the Gospel of Matthew, the good news of Matthew is that the grace of God is poured out over and over again. And so the righteous are not named by those who do everything perfectly. The righteous are not the sinless. The righteous are not the morally perfect and pure. The righteous are those who put faith in Jesus Christ. And they give their all to that. And they say, Lord, I have nowhere else to go, but I follow you. I believe you. And certainly the great climax of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. And so the grace and the power and the love of God found in Matthew's Gospel is so profound that even in Matthew 16, you've got Peter, this big, bumbling, overly enthusiastic screw-up, is the first one to look Jesus in the eye and says, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you, for this was not shown to you by your own self, but revealed to you from heaven. And so when we think of the righteous and the unrighteous, we're not talking about the perfect and the imperfect, because if that was the case, we'd all be goats. Only biding our time before the lake of fire. But the gospel is filled with far more good news than that. That even Peter... Clearly the biggest screw-up of a disciple of the twelve. Except possibly for the two that were fighting for the the right hand and left hand of Jesus. Because Jesus had just said he was going to die. So if he's out, we'll be in charge. That was pretty bonehead as well. But the grace of God covers all of our sins. And it's about faith. It's about trust. It's about saying, Lord, I'm yours. That kind of devotion. But Jesus tells us this parable, not for you to decide, well, am I saved or am I not saved? But he's saying that the fruit of those who put faith in Christ, it's urgently important. That that there be a fruit of your life, and the fruit of your life is expressed in looking after people, in loving people. I, I, I... I myself, as I, I just read this scripture, I, I was so just profoundly affected that this, this, all these three parables, he just, Jesus refused to give time, he refused to give the sign, but he says that readiness for these climactic events can only achieve by living all the time in such a way that Jesus' unannounced arrival will not be a disaster, but rather it'll be a time of praise and reward. And, and, I, and I, think of, I think of us, I, I think of even myself and my wife over our, our life, we've been married 23 years now. My youngest is 16. In two years, I'll be an empty nester. Consider these things. But I, I've been through decades of being just like overwhelmed in life with all that has to be done, physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, financially depleted, right? All of that. And all the while trying to do ministry and look like I've got it together. I bow in my success. Because I've not had it all together. And I would have taken any specific moment 
in those decades and said, Lord, was I ready then? Lord, was I diligent with my giftings and my callings at that point when I was tired and spent and I couldn't get that little girl to stop crying all the time? Lord, Lord, was I, was I mindful of those in need when I was trying to make my own budget work? That's what Jesus is getting after. He's saying, look, it's not like someday you'll arrive. That someday, when you're two years away from being an empty nester, or when you're whatever, a certain age, that you'll suddenly be ready, or everything will come together for the Lord's return. It's not like that. Because he doesn't give us a time. He doesn't give us a place or even a sign. He simply says, live with a sense of readiness. Live with a sense of, of usefulness. And live with a sense of prioritizing the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the imprisoned. God is so caught up with us reflecting his own heart and priorities that he says when, when the end of all time comes in the final judgment, the issue will be did you carry my heart? Did you look after the least of these? Did you give it your best shot? Or did you hold back? Were you living in a sense of readiness? That if at any moment the Lord came back and you didn't quite have the dishes finished yet or the grass wasn't cut yet, that even that, in the midst of that, you'll be ready to receive and to celebrate and delight in the Lord's return. And not feel like, man, I, I wasted my life, distracted by other things. I wasted my talents, my abilities, my money with prioritizing all this other stuff. And, and here's, here's where the rubber hits the road for me on the least of these. When Jesus goes through that list of the hungry and the thirsty and the imprisoned and the, the stranger and, and all of those things, in my mind, in my selfish little consumed mind, their problems are not my fault. If you're in prison, that's not my fault. If, you're, if you don't have decent clothes to wear, hey, newsflash, get a job. If you're an alien or a stranger or here illegally or whatever else, Get the blank out of my country. These attitudes that run so deeply in our sin, flesh, lives, Jesus says, have no place in my kingdom. I don't care if it's your fault or not. I'm asking you to love them. I'm asking you to have compassion for them. I'm asking you to take money out of your pocket and give it to them. I am asking you to take upon yourself the responsibility of your brothers and your sisters. That if someone is in need, that matters to you. You can't dismiss it as not your fault. You can't dismiss it as their consequences for their stupid actions. 
She says, I don't give you that opportunity. I'm telling you that in the final judgment, what matters is how you have treated the least of these. Jesus calls them my brothers and sisters. And so much so that to the extent you've done it to them, Jesus says, you've done it to me. What? Now, if you look to Matthew, Matthew says, you know what? When two or three are gathered, there the Lord is as well. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. Yeah, I like that. You know, when you, when you pray and you call out in my name, Jesus is like, it's like, I'm saying it myself. It'll be done for you. Jesus, Jesus so demonstrates his solidarity with his people that he's with us. We're one. He's not distant. He's with us. But here in the final judgment, Jesus says, you need to understand something. He says, but I'm with the least of these. That need that went unmet, that was me. That person suffering, that's me. And I think there's something beautiful about that because if I am that person suffering, if I am the one hungry or thirsty or in prison, if I'm the one without clothes, or if I'm the one without a house, or if I'm the one without, if I'm broken and destitute, Jesus says, yeah, I'm with you, Right? says so it's a two-way thing. But if you're the one provided for in the, in, the, in the provision of God, he says it matters to me. Salvation is an issue of faith and trust in God. It's free gift. You don't earn it. Jesus is not, with this parable, overturning the entire gospel and saying, look, unless you do this perfectly, you're going to the lake of fire. No, he's telling us a story with such impact that it grips our hearts to say, look, Tear off the selfish shell. Let the love of God fill you so much that when you see the hurting and the broken and the needy, you don't justify their neglect. But your heart is moved. Your heart is moved. I think there's so many ways that this church right here models this. We hear about taking in students from other nations, being a friend. That's this. We look at safe families and adopting children who are really in need. That's this. I, I think of the way so many people just care for one another when you're just in a bad way. Just one another. That's this. I think at Living Word, we send teams down to, to tutor in, in Altgeld Gardens because kids aren't getting good education and there's so many socioeconomic reasons for that. We won't go into it. But there's a need and the church is meeting it. Listen, this, this is profound in God's eyes. I guess I would ask you, what does this look like in your life? That if Jesus is telling this story to provoke us and cause us to think, wait a second, do I care about the least of these? Does it matter to me? Will I leverage my, my bags of gold? Will I leverage my gifting and my ability and my time? Will I be in a place of readiness that when that happens? I, had a, I was working downtown, I was younger, and I was eating at a restaurant, um, and it was a little street cafe right on the sidewalk. And so I was at lunch, we had a quick, you know, but I was in a suit and I was doing business stuff. I was in printing. And I was eating, and um, it was this pita-type sandwich, 
So I'm eating, and I'm with this person eating this pita-type sandwich. It's got two halves, right? And so I'm almost done with my first half, and I'm so looking forward to that second half, right? It's coming. It's really good. And this homeless guy walks up, and they're very bold, in Chicago Avenue, downtown. And he's asking for money. And then, I don't know what came over me. It must have been the Holy Ghost. But he says, hey, do you have any money? I says, no, but I got a pita sandwich. <laughs> and the guy looked at me like, I want money. And then he turned, he goes, but I'll take a pita sandwich. <laughs> and he took my pita sandwich and said, thank you, and he walked away. And it was one of those moments, it happened so fast, I never had time to think about it. And the person, the guy that I work with is sitting there, we're like, what just happened? <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> Can I have half your pita sandwich? But I think we have to get to a place where we're like, you know what, God's heart is that we're a little bit hungry this afternoon because we only had half a sandwich. God's heart is that somehow the church has a prophetic voice in the world. That who we are is not just some stodgy people that meet in buildings and do their little religious stuff. But that the church is this prophetic voice of heaven that changes the way culture, that changes the way things function. Because we're not about ourselves. It's not about taking number one first and then maybe someone else. Or, or the people who, if we, if we help them, we know they'll help us back. Man, it's about giving to the guilty. It's about giving to the, the people who deserve it. And still, somehow, God's people are the hands and feet of Jesus giving compassion to the blind man on the side of the road, to the tax collector sinner stuck up in a tree, to the man laying on his mat, sick because he can't get into the water before some angel stirs it. So how many stories do we have to talk about? The way Jesus demonstrated compassion and love. And he says, church, disciples, once this temple is thrown down, once the, the, the religious power structures collapse, once the armies come in and wipe this out, once nations rise and fall and cultures come and go, the only thing that God's going to look at in the final judgment is what you did and didn't do. And, and quite beautifully, I'll, I'll end now. Quite beautifully, as soon as that story's over, chapter 26 begins to talk about how the chief priests and the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus. It's very profound how the Holy Spirit put these scriptures together. Here he leaves with his disciples with this unbelievable parable of like, oh, can I, can I be that guy? Can, that, can we do that? And then suddenly, as they're considering their response to the sheep and the goats, here Jesus is swept off, arrested, beaten, crucified. His blood flows down. And you have to think his disciples with the sheep and the goat story still in the ringing in their ears and their hearts torn by their dilemma. Do I live by the flesh or do I live according to the spirit of God and the purposes of God? They're seeing Jesus who's gone before them, laying down his life, his very life, to cover the sins of their own heart that's contemplating living his way. It's profound. All right, let's pray. I'll leave you with that. And then John's going to lead us in communion where we partake in a table of his love and acceptance to us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that my words 
did not bring judgment or condemnation, but instead, Lord, would provoke, rightly provoke us all. God, to consider what it means to stand before you when all of time has ended and you look upon our lives. Lord, we want to be the ones who unbeknowingly, unknowingly, fed, clothed, cared for, sheltered, loved, the least of these, even you. God, stir our hearts. Holy Spirit, rip the sin of flesh from us and cause us to be people who are so caught up with the purposes of God, so filled with the Spirit of God, so provoked by the Word of God, that, Lord, we would be a prophetic voice to this place right here in this age, that the church would matter and we would be salt and light. We would make a difference in the world today. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.